0: morning, everyone. Thank you, Dice and the band that are leading us. We're uh, continuing here through the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've been with, with us in the last couple of weeks, you know, man, we've been going through some heavy stuff, and uh, Jesus is so difficult, and we're being confronted week after week, and yet uh, so challenging and Uh, intriguing and enticing and so we're continuing to make our way through uh, kind of Jesus's greatest hits in the Sermon on the Mount and as we consider are these words true to point us to reality is this a life that I want to apprentice myself to so that's why we're looking at it Uh, and this morning we're looking at uh, particularly words. Um, William Blake, English mystic, Uh, said this, In the universe there are things that are known and things that are unknown and in between there are doors. Things that are known, things that are unknown, and in between there are doors. And Blake's talking about this in the context of writing, working with words. And the work of a writer is to lead people to the door to lead them to the door, that in-between place of something being unknown, and then it's known. And so just think about how uh, for you, maybe you've got a favorite song, that's a door. Uh, maybe you have a favorite novel, you say that is a door. Uh, maybe there's a conversation this week with a friend, somehow in the exchange of those words... Uh, and, and you don't even know how it happened, but you moved. You were here, and now you're over there. And it, it somehow happened. You were, went through a door. You're moved in the conversation. And this really is, this is the power of words. Words are a door, which makes them such a problem. Because they take us places. I've hesitated to do this. I've made a, I actually made a vow that I would never... Uh, Quote the current president of the United States, and I'm breaking that vow this morning. This perhaps is, um, I'm not gonna, this perhaps is one of the best, I think, summaries of the presidency. This was fairly er early, um, and it's just such an incredible quote, uh, just for uh, so many reasons we're just going to watch a a one minute clip here of some news just some news would really be yeah, I mean, this is what makes it covering Donald Trump so very difficult. What does he mean when he says words? Does he mean the words, or does he mean something sort of like the words, or you know? And and it's been difficult to cover him as a journalist, and you can imagine as a foreign leader where English is your second language, and you don't understand maybe the bravado behind you know the things right. that Donald Trump is saying. It's it, you know, it, it, this is it's it's the, the word, words escape me to describe how you shouldn't take a president. Seriously, or you know, literally about his words. That is what you you must do with presidents. The best yeah. thing. The best thing I read during this whole this whole process was that you know people, the media, uh, public figures, mainstream, uh, they heard Donald Trump and they took him literally, but not seriously, for months. His supporters took him seriously, but not literally, <laughs> and it was a two different ways of of reading Donald Trump. And now we're all trying to adjust to what will the President Trump uh, be like, and how do we how do we take him seriously, but not literally? <laughs> we don't know yet. Zach, thank you so much. You. A, a good summary here, and many are noting that what seems like an increase of polarization in our time, the inability to understand. It feels like there's a growing gap between the left. And the right, and, and I wonder if much of this has to do with language, with words. Uh, the, the question, what does the president mean when he uses words? It's a good line. <laughs> and so in these post-truth, uh, fake news, alternative facts times, uh, we're, we're actually really, the, part of the subtext is we're wrestling with words. Words. In order to trust you, I need to trust your words. So there's a corrosion of trust that we're experiencing. And except it's not just Trump. I was reading an article this week uh, by some pundits that used the phrase generation hyperbole. And that's about, I think, many of us, where we want to use the strongest language possible to describe our experience. And so in doing so, we uh, actually increase our language so that we can increase our experience, Uh, often treating words like an Instagram filter on the experience. I'll just add uh, a bit of words to kind of embellish and make it sound better, look better, amp it up. And so I was just, I made a list this week of all these forms of inflated speech that I, uh, that I, at least these are the ones I know. Things like uh, epic, um, things being off the chain, off the hook, off the hizzy. Um, there's, there's also a, a thing of uh, describing things in the most extreme possible concerning death. So someone's not just doing well, they're killing it, crushing it, or slaying it, Um, or or that a person just slayed. Uh, This is a classic one, OMG, literally dying, (laughs) which I don't know how you'd write that if you were literally, or even figuratively dying. Um, That's an example. Uh, things, a lot of things exploding, mind blowing. You don't, you don't even say the words. You just do this. <laughs> right? Um, I read this sentence this week. This was in reaction to seeing a man with his shirt off, and this woman says, "My ovaries just exploded." <laughs> so there's an exploding, exploding theme. There's also fire themes. We want things as hot as possible. So something was lit, uh, or it's fire. Or straight fire, not just fire, straight fire. Um, or or things like worst person ever. Person isn't just bad, he's the worst, and not just the worst I've seen today, actually the worst of all time. The inverse of that often is, it was the best, whatever the thing is, fried chicken of my life, which really means it was the best fried chicken of your life this week, Um And before you put the last one up, I hesitate doing this. And I'm not sure. I've never done this before. But if I could give uh, a pastoral edict, uh, I would like to this morning. I would like to make an edict to ban in this church the use of this word. Next. Yeah. I just... (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do that or my authority extends that far. But I would like to... uh, Let's just bury that one. Uh, So Jessica Bennett uh, talks about how, in the age of the internet, she has this great phrase of how we've given all our words caffeine. Given all our words, just everything's amped and huge. And she says this: R.I.P. Rest in peace to the understatement. Welcome to death by internet hyperbole. The latest example of the overly dramatic, forcibly emotive, truncated, simplistic. And frequently absurd ways chosen to express emotion in the internet age or sometimes feign it. So we begin to see it's not just what does the president mean when he uses words. To put a little finer point on it, what do I mean? Or what do you mean when you use words? And so we're going to hold that question this morning. And consider these little things that we're always immersed in and using and reading and tweeting and watching and receiving, I'm going to pay attention to this question. What does it mean when you use words? And this matters uh, because we are meaning-making creatures, and humans must make meaning, and symbols, and tools, and objects, because we must have meaning. We need it. And since words carry meaning, if we lose our words we lose our ability to create meaning. And if we lose the ability to create meaning, we lose the ability to communicate, to commune, to commune. That's the essence of communication, to commune in our words. We lose the ability to relate because real things are either made or lost with words. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray for God's grace. We hold this question before you, God. What does it mean? when I use words. What does it mean when you use words? Pray for space to consider uh, Jesus' teaching here, to find confrontation and invitation at the same time. Pray for that grace to be open to you. In Christ's name, amen. So let's, let's read Jesus' words together. If you've got a Bible, we can go there together. This is Matthew 5, 33 to 37. This is the next section as we move along. The plan is we'll, we'll hopefully, we'll, we'll get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount by the end of summer. So that's our trajectory. So Jesus, these are Jesus' words. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven. For it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So we're in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually in the midst of these six commands uh, where there's anger, lust, divorce, now oaths, next week retaliation and hatred. Um, and this, this, the passage we just heard, of course, is concerning oaths. Um, and I guess today, I don't know how much you think about oaths or vows or how, how much we really use them other than in specific uh, legal situations. But in the ancient world... Um, swearing oaths, making vows, this was very ubiquitous and very important for society to move forward. But still, I don't know about you, but hearing these words, you kind of go, wow, compared to where we've been in the last number of weeks uh, and and kind of the severity of Jesus' teaching, compared to all of this, it feels a bit bland, like, why is Jesus so concerned about words, and why is that included here, and how does that even come close to the intensity, say, of anger or lust or divorce? So what's going on? Why would Jesus include this? And um, I'm going to give you a real quick review, but to answer the question What's Jesus on about here? The church's answer has been, we're not totally sure. <laughs> there's a really wide range of interpretation and wrestling with these words. What is Je- What does Jesus mean? Um, and so to summary, summarize, I think uh, there's three primary focuses where people have uh, directed their attention in this text. So we're going to look at that and then consider uh, what's the invitation for us? But the first focus, focus is just on oaths, vows. And, and so the understanding is what Jesus is most concerned about is about people playing games with words. Uh, vow-making had become an elaborate way to kind of wiggle out of doing what one had promised. And Jesus goes after the religious leaders, the Pharisees, for this in, in Matthew 23. Uh, and he gets to the heart of the matter saying... Look, when, you, when you're making uh, an oath by the gold of the temple rather than the temple, when, when you're making a vow by the gift on the altar rather than the altar itself, like, don't be fooled. You're playing games. If your heart isn't actually intent on fulfilling the vow, don't play religious games here. Um, this is what uh, Scott McKnight calls scaling honesty in words. To kind of only partially fulfill a vow or a promise and, and to think that you're justified in getting away with this. If that's what you're going to do, Jesus would say, just don't do it. Say yes or no. It, it's, it's better that you do that or don't make any vows at all. So that's kind of where the focus uh, is just in general. Others really focus on the, the part where it says no oaths at all. Really. N- none. Wrestling with, did Jesus actually mean this? Because if he did, this would put his followers in incredible tension with all governments and all civic engagement, uh, which historically and still require taking oaths. Uh, And so, uh, many would say, "This traditions will say, yes, he. This is what Jesus means. For to be his follower means you never." ever take an oath and it brings into question one's primary allegiance the question is do we at times render to caesar more than caesar is due are there times when in one's patriotism to their country the respect and deference given to their country for the follower of jesus it borders on or is actually idolatry it's a question of allegiance These are important questions for our time. This is uh, nationalism. To which kingdom do I give my allegiance to? So the interpretive history on this, uh, most Reformed traditions would be uh, Jesus is to be obeyed on this teaching except when uh, required by the state to make an oath. Then you can. Uh, The Anabaptist tradition said, No way really big on separation between church and state, and said, no, Jesus is to be obeyed, period. That means being a conscientious objector at times. That, for some, means not voting. That means not participating in the state because my allegiance is to another kingdom. So there's tension here in Jesus' words. Third focus, where some want to put most of the emphasis, is on the last bit, where Jesus says, just make your yes be yes. And you're no, bo, and No, no, be, yo. No, no, b, no. Anything beyond that, he says, is coming from the evil one. If there's any doubt, you know, how to live this out uh, on a heart level in the matters of oaths and vows, uh, Jesus makes it simple, applicable. Just don't make your vow complicated. Just say yes. If you need to make a promise or a vow, just yes, no. That's it. And then do what you said. And anything else besides this is evil. It seems strong to say. But those typically have been the three focuses on this text. I like this summary of, uh, of it all by Dallas Willard. Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they'd do it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they're saying and what they want. It is a method of getting their way. It is simply a device of manipulation. So we're starting to see then, if, if at the heart of it's about manipulating people, evading people, uh, we, we start to see then why is Jesus so concerned about something as small as words and how we use them. So I want to keep drilling down into that question and I think we'll start to see uh, why this matters so much. We've got to start at the beginning. Genesis 1. If you know the story, it says, The earth was formless and void, so there's nothing. And God then speaks, let there be. So let there be light. And the text says, and there was... I was so, so enthusiastic. And there was... Yeah, so there was nothing. God speaks... And there is something, uh, s- simple but profound view of the world and view of words. You may know, I think this is fascinating. In Hebrew, the word for word is dabar or davar, and it means both word and deed, which is fascinating Uh, The Hebrew word for word is not just a word. It's a word plus a thing or word plus an action. And so devar is a word event. It's a word event. To say something is to do something. (laughs) So when God says, let there be light, there was light, it's a word event. God speaks things that don't exist and then they come into being. They arrive by a word. And It actually, though, we don't, you know, you'd say, well, I can't do that, obviously. I can't just speak things into existence and they're there. And yet, we do. We use words in a similar way, but a smaller scale. One of my favorite authors puts it this way, and I say favorite authors, so you know you're not allowed to disagree uh, with this point. Uh, I just love that was a bad joke. Frederick Buechner says, Words are power, essentially the power of creation. By my words, I both discover and create who I am. By my words, I elicit a word from you. Through our converse, we create each other. Think about, uh, think about the power of words in a relationship that you now have that you did not have before. Okay, You got a, you got a, a relationship or a friend. It could be the person sitting beside you. It was not a relationship, now it is. How did that relationship start? It probably started with words. An introduction. Hey, this is my friend Sarah. Hi. A greeting. How are you? Fine. And on it goes. And and what do you do? Words start revealing who we are. In our words, we start communing. Start getting the sense of another person, find out their interests, their vibe, the feel of who they are. Maybe your in- intrigue picks up like, oh, this is an interesting person. You start talking more and more words, revealing, communi- communing happens. And let's say it's a romantic relationship and you ask the person out with words like this Would you enjoy getting bubble tea? on a hot afternoon in order for us to get to know one another, as well as to talk, possibly also to walk down commercial drive together. This is how you ask someone out, yeah? Okay. I'm a little rusty, but... Um, let's, so let's... let's uh, uh, those words then are an invitation, and you have bubble tea. And it's horrible. Because it always is horrible. Why are those... Things so big. Um, And then there's an invitation, and then there's texts. And there's, what are you doing? You're working with words. Just think about the simplicity of these words and what they do. Uh, Things like, I love you. I detest you. I forgive you. Words do things, and we're not always exactly sure what, Uh, They're very hard, but we know they're very hard to get undone. Something gets released through speech into time. Rock, pond, concentric circles rippling out through time. Or think of it in another way. Perhaps you're in a bad place, maybe even this week. You're filled with despair, there's doubt, you're wondering if there's a way forward. And then someone says something to you. Maybe it's even a small phrase like, I was thinking about you this week. I was wondering how you're doing. Or something like, can you come over on Friday night? Tiny little phrase. They say something. Maybe you heard it in a podcast or you read it or it was from a friend. Maybe you have a mother and she phoned you. Whatever it was, you were stuck, and these words inspired you and spurred you into action and gave you hope that maybe there's a way forward, because that's what words do. Words can change things. And so when we open up the scripture and we read this poem in Genesis 1, does it surprise you that the poet describes a God who creates using words? Words create new realities. Uh, there's a, a Jewish philosopher named Abram Heschel. And in, inter, in an interview with his daughter, she talks about some of the things that she learned uh, from him. I want to share with you some of these words. She says, words, he often wrote, are themselves sacred. God's tool for creating the universe and our tools for bringing holiness or evil into the world. He used He used to remind us that the Holocaust did not begin with the building of crematoria, and Hitler did not come to power with tanks and guns. It all began with uttering evil words, with defamation, with language and propaganda. Words create worlds, he used to tell me when I was a child. They must be used very carefully. Some words, once having been uttered, gain eternity and can never be withdrawn. The book of Proverbs reminds us he wrote that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Has anyone uh, this week had the experience of words creating something? Uh, have you been the recipient of a word, a phrase? Uh, uh, words did something to you, it created something in, in you. Anyone have an experience that you can think this week where, yep, okay, words did something? I don't know what the words of Anthony Bourdain's uh, death did to you this week. Just even, even the news of that uh, did something to many. Um, I, and maybe it was some of the things we've already talked about, an invitation or a sense that you, you're, somebody sees you and knows you. Uh, this past Friday, we had uh, a party for the artisans' leadership community, the cohort And these are people who lead uh, various ministries, worship leaders and kids team and neighborhood groups. And uh, as just a night of thank you and appreciation. And we had toasts. And, um, you know, you never know how this is going to go. Is it going to be awkward? And will we just kind of stand there in silence, it was hard actually to shut it down. Uh, And I was listening and watching people speak to one another in the room. Uh, with words of honor, appreciation—not flattery. No one's pumping tires. Uh, words of of uh, delight in someone's character. People naming gifts and goodness in other people. And I was thinking, how rare is this? Where does this happen? Where people speak to another person's face with words that it's good. You're good. The gifts God's given you is good. You exercising that is good. Where does this happen? Uh, and so I've, I've just felt so lucky in the room just listening to these words go around and seeing them create. So if we were to do a quick summary, and by quick I mean super quick, of how God uses words. we would say this, probably these three words could sum it, sum it all up. God uses words in order to create bless, and promise. We spent a lot of time on create. The other t- two, we're just gonna do a quick flyover because creating's actually inside both of those words. And so blessing, God's ongoing creative work in the world gets extended by him blessing people and things. And that blessing is favor, it's grace, it's the resources needed for that thing to fully become itself. God blesses in order for someone or something to flourish, for their life to unfurl. So God blesses in order for you to become more of who he made you to be. It's a blessing for flourishing. God promises. Oh, sorry. And and that blessing gets conferred through words. God also uses words to promise, makes covenants with people. Uh, God works so often, we see in Scripture, by pointing to something that's far on the horizon, it's not here yet, or you're not this person yet, or you don't have this yet, he points to this thing in the future and says, I promise you, that will, you, you will receive that. That land. You will receive the, the land. This blessing the prayer of Jabez sort of yeah uh, and there's the promise there that he will do this for the other person it's not based on your circumstances on your ability to get there or even your goodness it's based on God's character to do what he said he would do so this is how God uses words create blesses promises let's look at humans and words now as far as I know, human beings are the only species that use words. Now, I'm sure dolphins communicate, right, Alistair? So there's, co- there's communication in the animal kingdom. But as far as I know, we're the only ones who use words. The oldest term in English for a human being is end," which means word-bearer. It's the oldest term for a human uh, and, and so human beings are the ones who've been entrusted with the gift of language. And it really is our full-time occupation. Right? We work and live in words, in advertisements, in conversations, in songs, in the library book, in the blog, in the Twitter feed, in the gossip. All of this shows our unbroken participation in language and words. And we see humans right from the beginning taking up words. Do you know the first... I've probably talked about this, but I think it's amazing. The first bit of language from a human in the Bible is poetry. Isn't that so great? That When Adam sees Eve, he breaks out into verse and he says, At last, or now, or finally. And it's poetic speech. Words are needed to convey that delight and that communing. God. The first bit of work God gives to humans is to name the animals, because God wanted to find out what they would call them. First bit of work is naming, recognizing, seeing the essence of something, and then calling that uh, out, naming. And so we're immersed in language, and yet we would all say, as we where we started this morning, that much of our language making uh, feels broken. We see this in Scripture, too, in the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11. And this ambition to gather power, to use language as a tool of coercion, manipulation, resulted in increased confusion. Our our ability to commune in our words was broken. Uh, I like how Craig Gay puts it. He says, we are alienated from God and from one another, and we press language into the service of that alienation. We want to diminish and dismiss the humanity of others to ignore their claims on us, and we use language as one of our weapons. How many of us know anything about weaponized words? Yeah? We ignore their claims, and we use language as one of our weapons. So we see there's two ways of using words in the world. The first is... God's way with words, which is about creating and blessing and promising. But there's also a way to use words to destroy and to curse and to lie. I'm guessing that some of the most treasured possessions that you may own, some of the most valuable things aren't actually a thing, but are words that have been given to you. Words that unlocked you, that blessed you, That caused you to take a step that somehow came into you. You metabolized these words and because words are word and deed, they created action in you. You were able to take that next step to put the resume out there to show up for the interview because someone spoke a word of courage to you. Or perhaps it was a tender word from your father that you've been waiting for 20 years and it finally arrived or... Perhaps you're waiting for 20 years and it never arrived. But you got a word from a spiritual father or a spiritual mother that said, you're seen. You're beloved. I love you. I'm guessing for most of us, some of our most treasured possessions are words. And it's also likely that some of our deepest pain relates to words. The words that you have received that have been spoken over you. And so that little... That really dumb little phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words never hurt me, of course, is not true. It's just not true. We could probably share experiences of living under words spoken that have crippled or hamstrung you. I remember in grade eight, I was a point guard on the B team. Um, which means it was all the kids who didn't make the actual team. Um, and I was on a fast break. I was really short, really skinny for my age. And I went up strong. I'm telling you, I, I did go up strong uh, <laughs> on this on this layup. And I got, I got pushed, and I came down behind the net, and I remember hearing a crack, right ankle. Uh, and I also remember... Uh, being extremely loud about the pain. I was writhing and rolling around, and the gym goes quiet except for Lance, who is screaming his head off. And I remember going to the hospital, coming home, the cast, and I remember hearing my dad answer the phone in the kitchen, and it's Coach Andy, and I remember dad laughing and saying, (laughs) yeah, there was quite a lot of noise but he's got a very low pain threshold. And I thought, oh, do I? This confirmed for me what I'd always wondered about because I grew up playing the violin, and I was always slender, and I was uh, uh, very emotive, cried easy. And so I, I had a script that I'm, I'm really weak I'm not a strong person. And dad says, yeah, it's because it's of that. He doesn't have a high pain threshold. Uh, I remember those words. And they lodged. And they were painful because they, they confirmed a lie um, in me. Many of us have lived under words that have been spoke, spoken. And because it's a word plus an action, it's a word event Those words are over you or in you, metabolized actually into your body that cause you to be hamstrung, cause you to not be able to ever break in a full stride of confidence, to chronically second-guess yourself, to chronically see yourself uh, with a grit of shame. These words have been given and received and taken into yourself. This is... The power of words. Why? Because Heschel's right. Words create worlds. They create worlds. And so if uh, one little exercise could be to look at your world. What am I, what's the current experience? And try and trace it back to how has this world been created by some words somewhere? Or how is the, this world being created by the words I'm telling myself about myself? Or that I'm telling myself about the goodness and faithfulness of God. Or the words that I'm telling myself that other people are probably thinking or saying about me. Words create worlds, so it's an interesting thing then to try and reverse that back. Proverbs from the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. And with the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Another pro- proverb. The hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent, and their lips promote instruction. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. Man, that's, that's also the power of words. The power of words to heal. The power of words to release and bring freedom. To be taken in and metabolized and create new action in the world. So we can see why Jesus takes these little things, words, so seriously. Their potent power to put things into the world, to create, or to take them out of the world. The potent power to bless and cause someone or something to flourish, to become more of itself. Or the potent power to curse. You know you're, you, you have words that curse when you feel more diminished under a person's words, when you feel less than. That's, that's what cursing means. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean like someone saying, I curse you. It doesn't, that's not how it works. But if the phrases are, you'll never be, or you've always been, you'll never amount to, you're just a, that's all cursing language, and it diminishes, and it reduces A person. This is the potent power of cursing. The potent power to promise. To make one's character visible and known. Or the the potent power to, to lie. So this is why words matter. And Jesus then says that it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Words reveal who a person is. Whether it's a casual mark or it's a manuscript... Words are a bodily expression of a person's soul. Uh, There's a phrase that, so when you speak, a person comes out of their mouth. It's your person that's coming out of your mouth into the world. There's an unbreakable link between word and person. And that's what makes our words so important. So, Jesus is after wholeness. He's after being transparent and honest. So when you say, I'll be there, you're there. Or when you say no, it's really a no. When you enroll or uh, join or click accept and invite, it means you're faithfully there. Uh, It's just clarity, wholeness of person between the inside and the outside of you. That's integrity. That's what Jesus is calling for. I want to share one more scripture Brief story, and then um, a couple practices. This is Ephesians 4, 15, 16. I've been really intrigued by these words this week. Paul, we we looked at these words when we were going through Ephesians, but let's, let's circle back. Instead, Paul writes, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, notice the link there between being built up. That sounds like blessing language. Becoming more, being built up, growing, flourishing. Notice the link between being built up and speaking. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love to one another in community Taking up the vocation of creating, blessing, and promising to one another. What does that lead to? To the building up of other people. That This is where it gets exciting. That God's looking for a community that's going to take on this vocation of working with words in this way. Not to manipulate or to coerce or to lie or to exaggerate. But to be truthful. To speak to one another with gentleness and directness. Why? So that the people around you become more of who God's made them to be. In my early twenties, I was living in Alberta, and I, I I wasn't quite sure what was going on. <laughs> but I've been thinking about this story this week with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain's uh, deaths, and. Uh, it was early because this was this was my first plunge into depression, which I've talked about many times. But this was like the the beginning of year one, which was about a four year uh, period. And I was uh, at college, and uh, the wheels were completely falling off uh, my life. Uh, I was depressed. I didn't have language for it, but I just knew this is not normal for me to lay on the floor of my room, unable to do very simple tasks, avoiding people, uh, feeling really isolated, alone, uh, and to have suicidal thoughts, not because I wanted to die. I just wanted this to end with this season. Um, I was also in a camping phase. And by camping, I mean going hiking twice and buying a lot of camping gear. Um, And I I discovered Mac. I loved Mac. I loved having a membership. I loved the the validation of when they asked, do you have a membership? And I said, actually, I do. And uh, (laughs) pulling that out. Um, I loved reading about hiking. And possible hikes we could go on. And so what I'd often do is I would have what I called camp out in my dorm room. And that just meant blowing up my thermo rest and sleeping in my sleeping bag and having a bit of my gear and just having the backpack empty but kind of beside me, staging uh, a camp out. It was also, I think, unbeknownst to me, at just uh, an attempt to try and jar the system. I wanted out. I actually I wanted out. And so going to camp out on my floor. And I remember this one night in particular that was uh, really, really dark. Um, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, the dogs of depression, but I think that's a great metaphor. And and that night in particular, the the hounds were were out, and it was a full-on feeding frenzy. I laid on the floor, and I just tossed back and forth and was uh, inundated with accusation Uh, oppressive guilt and shame. Uh, Most of the attacks were about my identity. I felt defenseless that I I couldn't stop and I didn't know what to do, and I just took it. And so I just laid there, and I think I maybe fell asleep like five or six or something like that. It was an awful night. Uh, It was a really, really dark, dark night. And I remember in the morning seeing the light coming into my bedroom But I don't think that's what woke me up. I heard steps. Uh, This was a Bible college, and so there was the men's dorm and the women's dorm. And uh, I was in the men's dorm, I guess I just need to say it. Uh, So that's where I was living. And I heard steps, it was early, coming up the dorm steps. And then I heard the steps coming down the hall, and I was at the far end on the corner. And I heard them coming uh, to my door. And then I heard the sound of paper scratching on the hardwood. And under my dorm room door came a, um, a book made with pressed flowers and words. This was from Amy Clausen. And um, in the book were quotes um, about friendship, uh, scriptures about one's identity in Christ, And words of her own of what she saw in me. So this was uncanny timing. I had a night of living under uh, all kinds of really dark, nasty words. And in the morning, my uh, sort of girlfriend, uh, who had a hard time relating to this very depressed man, snuck in to the men's dorm to slide, to, to bring an injunction into to the, the feeding frenzy of the dogs and slid this through the door in the morning to say, here are other words. Here's another script. Here's some blessing in the midst of cursing. Uh, Here's some words that might create something. Uh, I have a folder here. of These are letters and words from Amy and cards and... Uh, all manner of things, postcards. I've saved. I've saved it all, and it's because. I'm not. To, I'm just trying to be frank with you, and I'm not emotional. It's because her words have saved my life, and remade my life. Actually, um, and I and I'm because I'm an Enneagram four, and I, I love things to be big. I'm really trying to keep this <laughs> it just right in here. Um. <laughs> But that really is true. I've been remade by her words. And in marriage, I think marriage is just uh, really the experiment of living with another person's words over time. And we have a lot of phrases that we've said to each other that have hurt one another, that have annoyed one another. One of the classics I said early on, we were both not good at cooking and we were learning. And... Maybe in the first month, Amy had made supper that night, and she said, did you think the meal was good? And my answer was, well, Amy, I'm never going to lie to you. <laughs> and she said, thank you for your integrity, and stood up and walked out of the room. Um, and so this is an on- ongoing joke of like, oh, you're never going to lie to me, you passive-aggressive jerk. Uh, LAUGHTER I think of phrases she said to me. She says, Lance, you're not a loser. You're just currently losing. Um, And this uh, this isn't just relegated to marriage. This is relegated to church, to friendship. It is relegated to church in particular where Jesus speaks the better word over people. Whereas scripture says, people, you can be washed with the word. You have things washed off of you. Uh, in a moment, we're going to metabolize bread and wine. And we're going to metabolize the words given for you in a moment here. And so we receive that and then we learn to, to give this away to one another. And not just to a spouse, but to a, uh, a friend, a stranger. So... What do you mean when you use words? It's a good, good thing to consider. To go, okay. How have I been using words in my parenting? How have I been speaking about people I really don't like? Are you creating? Are you putting life into the world? Are you taking it out? Are you blessing? Are you cursing? Are you promising? Are you lying? Words create worlds couple things then of what this might look like. Well, first would be to practice encouragement. I love how uh, Paul says it this way. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. There it is again, just as in fact you are doing. I like how Sammy Rhodes puts it. Encouragement is the art of eulogizing someone while they're still alive. Why save those good words for when they're not here and can't hear you, could you? What would it look like to practice this art of taking risks, of saying to someone what you really think and mean, uh, and, and giving those gifts when they can still receive them? Maybe today that could be just doing a simple thing like saying something to someone, or, or we could go over to the prayers of the people and you could certainly write out a prayer, but maybe take a piece of paper and write down some words that you want to give someone this morning. Uh, so to practice the art of encouragement. Second thing is to practice advocacy. So to use your words, to use your voice for those who have lost theirs, to make space for people, perhaps in your silence, to, for them to find their words, to find their voice. To use words to call out, the gifts of others, but also to call out systems of oppression, to defend those who have been disempowered. So to find your voice, use your words to practice advocacy. A third way to practice could be practice, practicing words of knowledge. Paul says this, follow the way of love, love that, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And so here we have words of knowledge where uh, prophecy just means tuning into God's heart and speaking it. So you tune into God's heart, you receive somebody's... I, I, I was leading a retreat a couple months ago, and I felt this happen to me. We were worshiping, it was with a, another church, and it all their worship leaders, and we were in a circle worshiping, and I looked across at this man, and I, I just felt this boom deposit of God's heart and words for this man who I don't really know, And I thought, I better say this. And I was scared, mostly looking dumb. And I took a risk, and I said these words, and I watched as my words went across the room and went into his ears and went another place I couldn't see, and I saw him crack. Crack. With the sense of what? Lance's words were poetic? No. God knows me. There's no way Lance knows this about me. There's no way. (laughs) This is what Corinthians is on about, saying practice the gift of prophecy so that when people come in your midst, they'll say, God is among them. So you give words that don't just originate in a human, uh, but you give words that plunk down and you take a risk. So we can practice this. Fourth is practicing under-promising and over-delivering. I worked at a bookstore where we were always taking special orders, and you wanted to over-promise. yes. Ma'am, we will get your book for you in nine days. But we are trained to uh, under-promise and over-deliver, say it's probably going to be 14 to 15 days, and then surprise them with a five-day delivery. <laughs> I think there's something there, particularly for us who live in this city, because I've learned about this phrase of being Vancouvered. would um, I don't know if you know this, but the sense of being vancouver is someone says they're going to come to your thing, or your par- and then they just don't show and like, aha, you got vancouver So apparently that's a thing in the culture of our city, of saying, yep, I'm coming. I clicked yes on the Facebook event. And um, so that, that could be a simple practice of under-promising and then over-delivering, of, of having integrity. The, the fifth one is, I'm putting it in there because it's my sermon, practice poetry, and which... Um, which I think is important because poetry, just all poetry is, is attention plus economy of language. You care for the things in the world, and you care for words. That's what a poet does. You care for the world, and you care for words. I'm going to read a poem, and then let's let's get to the table. This is a William Stafford poem. It's called A Ritual to Read to Each Other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star, for there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike, and as elephants parade holding each, each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider lest the pride of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, Or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. So as we've said, we come to this table to receive bread and wine and words. On the night that he's betrayed the Lord Jesus...